0: Welcome to Digital Jung, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss solitude and the vital importance it plays in supporting our engagement with life and with the world. It's the human soul, that's the buried treasure. I understand your wish very well but must tell you at once that it does not fit in with my situation i am now getting on for 82 and feel not only the weight of my years and the tiredness this brings but even more strongly the need to live in harmony with the inner demands of my old age solitude is for me, a fount of healing, which makes my life worth living. Talking is often a torment for me, and I need many days of silence to recover from the futility of words. The quote for this episode, is the opening section of a remarkable letter written by Jung in the spring of 1957. One of the things that I love about Jung's letters is that they're a window into the humanity of this famous psychologist, right? this, this great innovator. And there's often a deep wisdom that shines through in his letters with a directness that is necessarily and understandably muted in his professional and theoretical writings. In his letters, he doesn't need to maintain the stance of a psychologist, and he shares freely his hard-won experiences of life and living. And in this particular letter, Jung is responding to an old acquaintance who has written to him and asked if he could spend a few days with Jung at his tower in Bollingen, engaged in a mutual exchange of ideas. And Jung, as we heard, offers this eloquent, if unequivocal, no. I'll say more about this no later on, but the main theme that I want to explore here is the question of solitude. Solitude is for me a fount of healing, writes Jung, which makes my life worth living. Now, as an introvert, I have to admit that I find a lot of resonance with this experience of solitude as a fount of healing. But I want to suggest right off the bat that solitude is not just something for introverts. It's an important human value regardless of whether one is more introverted or more extroverted. In fact, I would be inclined to say that both extroverts and introverts, as well as those in between, need to refine their relationship with solitude. And at the risk of oversimplifying things, extroverts need to learn how not to avoid or, worse, despise solitude. While introverts need to learn how not to simply retreat to or even hide out in solitude. For extroverts, times of quiet withdrawal often take them by force through illness or exhaustion. When one extends oneself into the world without adequate moderation, it's as if the psyche finally revolts and forces a retreat, orchestrating a temporary collapse so that at least some kind of restoration and renewal can occur. Introverts, on the other hand, often struggle with their introversion, their need for retreat. They struggle with their relation to the social world and can often wonder if something is wrong with them, especially when there are countless messages around them telling them that there is. Not infrequently, though, for the introvert, it's quiet and aloneness that allow her to become aware of her need to be with others. But regardless of where one falls on the continuum of extroversion and introversion, it can't be denied that being in a crowd can sometimes be a desperately lonely experience. While time spent alone can be infused with the energy of deep communion. And of course, no one is a pure introvert or a pure extrovert. What each of us requires will differ depending on our specific temperament. But we all need some kind of mixture of both the social and the solitary. Anthony Store in his book Solitude, A Return to the Self, puts it this way. It seems to me that what goes on in the human being when one is by oneself is as important as what happens in one's interactions with other people. Two opposing drives operate throughout life, the drive for companionship, love, and everything else which brings us close to our fellow man, and the drive toward being independent, separate, and autonomous. Each of these drives is essential to our psychological health and wholeness. When we were just infants, they were operative. The infant has essentially two ways of engaging with the outside world. Right? They can look towards the other or they look away. The look towards is expressive of the need for connection and the look away, the need for separateness. And if these needs are not both adequately met, supported, and welcomed by the environment, or worse, if they're actively thwarted, it can cause an injury. The self. To be sure, these two inner demands are often in conflict with one another, right? And it's not always a straightforward matter to know what to attend to or when. It gets even more complicated when other people, with their own rhythms for togetherness and separateness, get involved. It's a complex problem with no easy formula that can solve it for us. It takes attention, sensitivity, and reflection. In his letter, Jung presents the issue of solitude as a need of his old age. I am now getting on for 82, he states and feel not only the weight of my years and the tiredness this brings, but even more strongly the need to live in harmony with the inner demands of my old age. Now, I don't think that Jung is implying that a need for solitude arises with old age. There is no doubt that as we get older and our available resources of energy decline, we may feel less and less inclined to be at the center of the action, so to speak, to feel less desire for interaction and stimulation. But it's not primarily the tiredness that comes with age that Jung is talking about here. There is a need, he says, to live in harmony with the inner demands of one's old age. And this, it seems to me, is the key phrase here. Age brings with it a demand for increased interiority. As our capacity to engage the outside world of activity dwindles, the inner world takes on even greater importance. And if we don't have enough practice with solitude before our advanced age sets in, we may find those years, thrown back as we are on our own selves, to be a torment full of boredom and loneliness. If we don't know how to enter the rich landscape of the inner world, we may encounter it as a wasteland instead. As the poet Rainer Maria Rilke writes, the man who is not rich now, as summer goes, will wait and wait and never be himself. And so it is crucial that we develop both a familiarity and a facility with solitude. Of course, there's a reason that we tend to avoid solitude, or that we can't take full advantage of it, even when we believe that it's what we seek. Because the truth is, solitude is hard It can open to us dimensions of ourselves that we have generally neglected for too long. And more than that, it can bring us face to face with the mystery and the vastness of life, as well as with the mystery of our own aloneness. Again, it's Rilke who gives expression to this when he writes, ultimately, and precisely in the deepest and most important matters, we are unspeakably alone. The Jungian analyst Edward Edinger says exactly the same thing from a psychological perspective. We each inhabit our own separate world, he writes, and have no way of knowing how our world compares with that of others. Of course, we have language, but even that, I suspect, is far more of a private and personal experience than we realize. This fact of our aloneness can be a difficult and uncomfortable truth to grasp, but it is an unavoidable one for anyone who seeks to know themselves deeply, anyone who is engaged in the work of individuation and the practice of the symbolic life. Jung puts the situation in stark terms in an important essay titled The Development of the Personality. There he says, The development of personality from the germ state to full consciousness Is at once a charisma and a curse, because its first fruit is the conscious and unavoidable segregation of the single individual from the undifferentiated and unconscious herd. This means isolation, and there is no more comforting word for it. And of course, We recoil from the possibility of isolation. There is little comfort in that idea, as Jung points out. But while it may be the first fruit of consciousness, as he says, it is not the last word. Because the fact is, that the experience of our fundamental aloneness is, paradoxically, an entry into a larger world. We are each, says Edinger, the lone inhabitant of a sealed world. In this respect, we are all in the same And what he's saying here is that it's only in this encounter with our own aloneness that we can truly find our way to one another, that we can fully understand and empathize with each other. Solitude, then, gives us the space and the distance by which we can come into a deeper relationship with ourselves, with the world and with other people. We move through isolation into communion. Furthermore, solitude sensitizes us to the numinous, such that we are able to hear what Raymond Panikkar calls the heartbeat of reality. So here's a poem by the Scandinavian poet. Edith Sodergran that speaks to just these transcendent depths that are to be found in the experience of solitude. It's called Forest Lake, and it goes like this. I was alone on a sunny shore By the forest's pale blue lake In the sky floated a single cloud, and on the water, a single isle. The ripe sweetness of summer dripped in beads from every tree, and straight into my opened heart, a tiny drop ran down. Here is a beautiful image of the profound communion with life that can grow out of the practice of solitude. The speaker of the poem is alone, and her aloneness is reflected by the natural world with the single cloud in the sky and the single island on the water. And her solitude seems to have the effect of opening her heart, making her ready and able to receive the blessing of the ripe sweetness of summer. Nature loves to hide, declared the philosopher Heraclitus some 2,500 years ago. In other words, it does not yield its numinous secrets lightly. Like the narrator of the poem, we have to be ready and able to receive its blessings. It takes the right conditions to be able to encounter the extraordinary. And this is the insight of the poet Mary Oliver when she writes, No one yet has made a list of places where the extraordinary may happen and where it may not. Still, there are indications. Among crowds, in drawing rooms, among easements and comforts and pleasures, it is seldom seen. It likes the out-of-doors. It likes the concentrating mind. It likes solitude. One of the things that all of this suggests is that solitude is not merely for the sake of solitude, right? It's not a turning away from the world, nor is it just a way to get some rest or tune out for a while or to shut down. Solitude, rather, is for the sake of a greater experience of life, a deeper Involvement with the world. In one of her essays, the writer Anais Nin asserts that it's our ability to enter the inner world where we can do our difficult spiritual work that makes possible our engagement with the world of action. She writes, The world from which we draw our wisdom. Our lucidities, our power to act, our courage is in this other world, which is not an escape, but a laboratory of the soul. But if we are to have this deeper, more authentic engagement with life, we must learn to protect our solitude, this is a key takeaway here, and it brings us back to the know that Jung, in his letter, gives to his acquaintance who had asked for a visit with him at his tower in Bollingen. Jung is clearly someone who has developed a healthy relationship with his own aloneness, and furthermore, he has come to experience it as necessary to his life. It makes my life worth living, he writes. Jung's no, however, while it is unequivocal, is not absolute. Towards the end of the letter, he offers something of a compromise. Naturally, I should be glad to see you one afternoon for about two hours, he suggests, preferably in Kusnacht my door to the world. Around August 5th would suit me best, as I shall be at my home then in any case. Kusnacht was Jung's home, where he had his office. He's offering a short meeting in the realm of his public life, his door to the world, and away from the private, solitary world of his tower. He's making it clear that there is an appropriate time and place for his life as a public figure in the world and what we might call a sacred time and place for solitude and the life of the inner world. And maybe this is a model that we too might make use of for ourselves, adapting it to our own personal circumstances. Maybe we can find inspiration in Jung's example to take our own solitude seriously, to make a practice of it, and to learn to protect it from constant exposure to the outside world and to the busyness of everyday life. But perhaps for us, even more so than would have been necessary for someone of Jung's time, we also need to learn to protect our solitude from ourselves. And what I mean by that is that it's we ourselves who are constantly interrupting ourselves. We have let our technologies infiltrate every crevice of our lives. We listen to music as we walk in the woods chat with friends on the phone while driving or even while riding a bike. We scan our social media feeds or binge a favorite or even just a good enough show whenever a free moment arises. And of course, none of these things in and of themselves is inherently bad or wrong. But if every moment is filled with some content from outside us somewhere? How will we ever discover what potentials live inside us? How will we ever know what new and surprising thing we might bring forward and offer to the world if the field of our consciousness is always crowded and noisy? Obviously, most of us will never have the kind of luxury that Jung possessed, to have a secluded tower on the banks of a lake to which we can retreat. But that need not prevent us from carving out spaces of quiet and privacy for ourselves. One form of solitude might be simply to not bombard ourselves, bombard our souls with a constant stream of information and stimulation. Instead, we can try to cultivate stillness and to tolerate boredom and to learn, in the words of the poet, Antonio Machado to listen at the shores of the great silence. And maybe if we can learn to do this, maybe for us too, the extraordinary will draw near and we might begin to hear the heartbeat of reality. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening good care.